Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. Ravi, welcome back from Costa Rica. What's going on this week? Well, Jason... I'm sitting actually from where I'm sitting, you could see One World Trade Center. And it made me think, you know, we should start this episode by just marking uh, the 20th anniversary of 9 11, which is coming up in a couple of days. I was reading something from George Packer this past week that got me thinking. And he wrote this He said, September 11th is buried so deep under layers of subsequent history and interpretation that it's hard to sort out the true feelings of that day. But let's try. Where were you? back then 20 years ago uh, and what were your immediate feelings so i was going to college at american university in washington dc i was in my last year of college and i remember that morning stopping into the student center because everybody was you know gathered around the tv and seeing um i don't remember now if it was the first or second plane hitting the tower i think it was the first and then by the time I got to my chemistry lab on the other side of campus, uh, it was apparent, I think from the second plane hitting, that the country was under attack. And I remember getting into an argument with my chemistry professor and being like, why are we having class? And then ended up the rest of that day just trying to find a way to help. My roommates and I went down near the Capitol. Uh, it was like a ghost town in D.C. And we went down near the Capitol because we found out you could give blood there. And we stood in line for what felt like a couple of hours before somebody came out and said, uh, you know, we don't have the capacity to take any more blood. I hope you can find another way to help. And uh, I decided right then and there that uh, I was going to join the military. Wow. Well, I was in my first year of college and I was actually in my second week. And a friend of mine from Staten Island just came into my room. You know, we weren't as wired back then as one thing I, that this prompts me to remember is that we weren't like getting alerts all the time. You had to be in front of your laptop or in front of a, a TV. And it was one of those weird things that I, if you've ever seen the movie JFK, when they're like, oh, the president's been shot and they're like, let's, who has a TV, right? It yeah, kind of reminds yeah. me of that in the sense that we were just like in college and none of us were really properly set up at that point. So we all went to the dining hall and started watching from there. And what was surreal about it was I grew up in, in New York City, but I was upstate for the first time in my life, really, you know, living away from home. And we were sitting around watching this and a buddy of mine from my neighborhood who from Staten Island also lived in my dorm building and we were watching it. And he you know, comes to the realization that his father was a police officer in the city and over the course of the next few days and then weeks, we, we kept going back to Staten Island. His father was missing. Yeah. Turns out his father was a police officer who's bringing oxygen to firefighters in the North Tower. And they eventually recovered his remains. Oh, and, you know, Staten Island was crazy hard hit. Everybody in Staten Island knows somebody who was lost. You know, there's a church down the street from my house that lost 28 members. There's a school near me that lost 23 you know, of the, the zip codes that lost the most people, two out of five of them were Staten Island zip codes. And part of the reason is that there are a lot of commuters, but another part of the reason is that there are a lot of firefighters and cops. And, you know, I know that there's been this, this debate and in some ways a really important debate about police officers and law enforcement. But, you know, I think it hits a little bit different where I come from because people, that's their memory, you know, like, your neighbors are, are cops and, and you have this image of cops or people who put their lives on the line and, and some people who never made it back. 
you know, another thing about 9-11 that was really weird about my childhood is that I grew up essentially on top of the largest garbage dump in the world called Fresh Kills. And my family's from this town called Travis in Staten Island. And it was the sole residential dumping grounds for New York City's garbage for like 50 years. And it closed in 2001, a few months before the 9-11 attacks, but then they reopened it to use it as a burial ground. And so when, during that period of time, there were just sanitation trucks coming in and out of the neighborhood and, you know, rubble was being left, you know, like it was like falling out of trucks and stuff. And the whole thing was, it was just wild. But as sad as it was, I look back on it and think to myself, the one thing I miss about that period of time was how united we were as a country. And it, it, it brings in stark relief where we are today. It's interesting because there are enough people out there who are really active, like in the debate, who are young enough now, like people I talk to frequently, who don't really remember that period. Or if they do, they weren't old enough to really remember what it felt like in that period. Like maybe they were in, you know, grade school or whatever. So they remember it happening, but they weren't like watching the news closely. And so it's hard to communicate to people how unlikely it would have been. Like if you asked people 20 years ago, uh, if you explained the politics that we're in right now and how caustic it is and how toxic it is, I, I just, if you had said that to me, I just would not have believed you. I, I would yeah. have, I would have felt like, no, I mean, America has changed. Maybe that's what it was going to be like, but that's definitely not what it's going to be like now that nine 11 has happened. And I think often about like, if there were another nine 11 type attack, you know, what would it be like? And two things, one, I, I know that it wouldn't be anything like that, that they would instantly be both parties trying to figure out how to lay blame on each other for that. So the country has has changed in so many ways. And, and unfortunately, so many of them are not for the better. Right. And I, I saw a stat that said that one third of Americans today were either children or not alive when 9-11 happened. It, it makes me think about that. Your experience in mine we had such an interest. We, had, we I keep using this word interesting. I need a better word. We had a unique experience in many ways. We, we we had one foot out of the internet, one foot in the internet, but we also had one foot in a world that saw that had America like this post Cold War world. Like even in the eighties, it was kind of post Cold War because it was clear at that point we we're basically winning it. Uh, and so we basically had this period of unbridled, pretty much prosperity of the United States. U.S. is the world superpower. This just sense of of at least security from international actors that we had. This sense that we were just badass America, taking on the world, on top of the world, untouchable and permanent. That was the other thing, right? It was not just that America seemed untouchable; it was that that didn't seem like it would ever stop. Our one, you know, there were there were there were there were various spats around the world. But the, the Gulf War, the first one, was the, the most memorable war, at least in my lifetime, which was this surgical strike where the U.S. came out looking pretty mighty and had a limited involvement and left and all sorts of problems with that. But there was just this sense that we could do whatever we wanted to do for better or worse. And I think kids now, and even like even us, like you have to almost remind yourself of what that was like, this sense of just total optimism and confidence that this country had. You know, I, one of the ways that I think it, you can really define it, the difference is if you go back, like if you're somebody listening to this and, and you, you didn't really live through that or like live through it in a way where you really remember the cultural shift. If you go back and you watch movies depicting the military, from pre nine eleven, they're yeah, completely post Vietnam, post Viet like the, the yeah. post immediate Vietnam area pre nine eleven. They're completely know? different. Stripes is like the perfect example, but like there's a, I forget what it was called, but there was like a Polly Shore movie that where he was it was a Gulf War movie. Like it wasn't just like a movie about the military. It was a movie about the most recent war, just like made like just a few years after that war. And it's just a comedy, right? And it depicts the military as incompetent and all that kind of stuff. Was it called In the Army Now? In the the Army Now, right? And and I think it was uh, Polly Shore and and Andy Dick, I think. And and if you you think about the difference there between then the way any military is portrayed in movies after what it what I think it shows is like 
not just that obviously like our respect for the military changed and our understanding of the professionalism of the military changed, but it, what it shows is that culturally we felt completely fine just making fun of the military, right? Because, right. you know, we have this great military because we have this great economy and no one's ever going to mess with this. So let's just, you know, make this hilarious and make this the thing that we make fun of because we consider it the thing that you go do if you can't get a better job. And now you don't, Ever, you rarely ever see it depicted that way because we no longer have that cultural crutch that says, you know, we don't have to act like we have a great military because no one can touch us. Like we can, it, nothing is serious. Like we, that's gone. It's sort of like, it just sort of took the innocence away. And the naivete, right? I mean, it, it, we were naive and it just blasted that away. Yeah. If you, if you bring yourself back to 2000, It was an election that I just missed by a hair being able to vote in. The big talking point about that election, you know, by Nader and others, was that Gore Bush was like Coke and Pepsi. There wasn't much of a difference between them. And that was that was a strand of argument going back a while. And and some people like Ezra Klein have done a lot of work to actually show ideologically that that was that was more true than I think conventional wisdom today allows. And now you look at it and it's unimaginable to think about the two parties as, as Coke and Pepsi. I know there are still people who make that argument, but I, I don't find that a credible argument. We, we should be clear. It wasn't credible then. You're just, your point is yeah. just the difference has become so much more stark. Yeah. I mean, because I don't want it to be lost that like if the popular vote winner had actually taken the White House and if the chicanery had not happened in Florida and if there had been, frankly, just a a different secretary of state and a different local election authority in Florida, there would never have been a war in Iraq. Yeah. So so that's part of my point is that from then forward, you can add shit out. Right. But like, what's the difference between Bush one and Clinton? You know, like different. There's for sure differences, but it's hard to sketch out too many of them, right? But you can take this period of 2004 and say, from then forward, it's pretty clear, both internationally and domestically, how things would shape up under different presidents. And that that kicks off this sort of new wave of polarization. The polarization was already happening. Like the 90s were a shit show, you know, between Gingrich and the Clinton, the Clinton camps. And, you know, I, I certainly have a view as to who's more to blame there. But it got so much worse after 2001 and has only been getting worse. And so that's the bad news. (laughs) Well, you know what's ironic about that, though, is that we're able to so confidently say that there never would have been a war in Iraq because the difference in the uh, foreign policy and, and national security policy of the two parties was so stark at that time. Their domestic policy was not as far apart as it is now. Like the Republicans weren't outwardly, openly trying to, you know, destroy democracy. And they were having to at least pretend that they didn't want to destroy all union membership in the country and and that kind of thing. But we knew like when 9-11 happened, like there was a real sense that like, okay, the Republicans are much more into military adventurism. And now yeah. because of these wars, now it is really not tenable for the most part, for any American politician in either party to have uh, a pro-military adventurism position. So ironically, it has shifted where the two parties are closer to each other and where they are so far apart. Right. And that's why I think like in many ways, the post 9-11 generation has a lot in common with the post-Vietnam generation, right? Whereas I think we, like people who grew up in the 80s and 90s, didn't sacrifice uh, the way you did in that war, probably have more in common with the 1950s generations, you know, of like this sort of knew what it was like to have this kind of strident American image. I think in some ways, I mean, to me, one of the biggest differences, though, and why the disconnect is so much greater now is that so many people in the post-Vietnam generation, like if they had lived through Vietnam, they or people they were close to had served because of mandatory service. Right. The war, the war had affected their lives in major ways, you know, and for our generation, if you didn't serve, it's like 9-11 affected your life in a major way. If you, right. you know, if you're old enough to have lived through that. But after that, it's you know, just George, taking your shoes off in the airport, essentially. Is right. A big sacrifice. You know? Exactly. And George W. Bush saying like, hey, go shop instead of like, join the military or buy war bonds and don't cash them in or whatever. And and so I that is a distinct difference that I think has added to the polarization this time around because there's so 
little shared experience. I think last week on this podcast, I said that I was planning to go see my therapist to talk about some stuff going on uh, with me right now with regard to Afghanistan and everything. I did. I'm very glad I did that. Uh, And that's why we love pushing this sponsor because we want as many people to get that kind of help uh, as possible. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient that you can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they can make it easy and free to change counselors if needed, and it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. And they have licensed professional counselors who specialize in depression, stress, anxiety, and so much more. So I want you to start living happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com m54. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash M54. Well, Jason, I'm a, a weirdo who sets quarterly goals in my life. And my new quarterly goal for Q4 of 2021 is to do one thing every day to move forward my Italian. And of course, I'm using Babbel to do that. And what I really love about Babbel is that they have these 15-minute lessons, which I do under 15 minutes, you know, just to, just to let you know, um, sure. which make it a perfect way to just quickly keep up with your language and, and move forward. And what I love about it is that they have a diversity of ways to learn. Um, what I really love is this, this interface where they allow you to listen to and read conversations in Italian or whatever language you're learning. And uh, it sounds like a conversation you'd overhear in a cafe in Rome or something. And then you just have to answer questions about it. And so I really feel like I'm advancing uh, both my ear and then they have opportunities for you to practice speaking as well, um, which is really cool. You are an optimizer. This is the perfect product for an optimizer like Ravi. Uh, that's fantastic. Right now, when you purchase a three-month Babbel subscription, you'll get an additional three months for free. That's six months for the price of three. Just go to babbel.com and use promo code MAJORITY54. That's B-A-B-B-E-L.com. Code MAJORITY54. Babbel. Language for life. It is kind of surreal for you and I to be having this conversation right now for the benefit of people who don't remember or who didn't live through this period and discussing this as what it is, which is American history. Like it is to me surreal because I feel like there's not been a conclusion to the post 9-11 era because of the way it's affected my life. But in truth, like we're talking about some stuff that happened 20 years ago. Like this is history now, which is really hard for me to wrap my mind around. Nine eleven is history, but we're we're still in it. You know, we just left. You know, left quote unquote Afghanistan, right? So let's talk about that. I know you have been working around the clock over the past few weeks to get people out and get people the help they need. Can you give us an update on on what's happened on the ground there? Sure. So what's happening on the ground is that obviously the Taliban have taken control of the country. And what people need to understand is the Taliban is not a monolith. It's not like they take over and then, you know, word comes from on high and it just works the same way all over the country. I mean, as has been well established, Afghanistan is not a country that is easy to maintain complete control of by anyone, whether a foreign or or domestic power. You know, there's different sects of the Taliban. There's politics within the Taliban. So while the Taliban is negotiating and actively, in some cases, working with the United States government on things like counterterrorism when it comes to ISIS-K or negotiating over who is going to be uh, permitted to leave, what's going, they're they're negotiating with the international community over what's going to happen with Kabul airport uh, and whether, you know, international flights are going to be able to leave from there and whether the people are going to be able to leave freely if they want to, and many want to, all that is happening. But in the meantime, in Kandahar and Masri Sharif and even parts of Kabul, there's just parts of the Taliban that are like, yeah, I don't care about that stuff. Which, I mean, if you if you think about any other organization, right? Like if, if the American military didn't have the uh, command and control and the accountability and the systems that it has in place, like 
you can imagine where the kind of atrocities that we occasionally see where you know troops at the lowest level go off on their own and do something horrendous you can see how much more common that would be if they didn't have the centralized command structure that they have that's what's going on with the taliban is you know while they may be giving lip service and in some cases maybe they even mean they want to act in a way at least right now that is at the behest of the international community there's lots of stuff they don't have control over um and so for instance right now in masri sharif there are planes on the ground with and masri sharif for for reference um is is north of kabul it is you know if you're an afghan making the drive and going through a lot of taliban checkpoints um I can confirm as of the last few days, it's about a 10 to 12 hour trip. The airport there has been the site of several private rescue missions, charters coming in. And then a lot of us got connected to that and got some people there. A harrowing journey, particularly if you're going with a young family. And if you're, for instance, say as somebody I'm helping uh, on a list that the Taliban has, like it's a, it's a pretty scary journey. And if you make it there and then now you're as a lot of people are moving frequently, trying to stay away from the Taliban who is looking for you. And this is the case for a lot of people. You also have the practical problem of you have mouths to feed and you can't go to work because if they're looking for you, you can't leave. You got to hide. And so there are a lot of people right now who are hoping to get out on one of these flights because right now, overland travel like smuggling people across the border is few and far between because countries don't want to take them because the taliban at the border won't let them through all sorts of things it's really dangerous right now and and it's hard to tell because there's two sides to this story there are people among some of the private rescue operations who are saying that the state department is standing in the way and not letting not letting these private uh, rescue flights get off the ground. And some of them argue it's because the state department doesn't want to look bad because somebody else is achieving this. Personally, I don't, I don't buy that. I think that there is, there are some bureaucratic issues going on. I don't think it's for that motivation. And then the state department is saying that the Taliban is, is not allowing any flights to take off and they're basically frozen things at the airport. I think that's likely. And at the same time, I think that this needs to get sorted out so that the State Department can facilitate private rescue efforts leaving. And it's really frustrating because in the meantime, there are a bunch of us who are, you know, have hooked this up and are trying to get people on these flights. And I don't know what's going to happen next. Well, keep us posted. And, and thank you for, for working so hard on this. I have two quick takeaways on all that. One is I, I just read that the Taliban have announced at least partial government of some sorts. And there are a couple notable things about it. No women uh, in the government, no, none of the Shiite minority in the government. And the interior minister is a guy who I remember reading cables when I was in government, who's a wanted terrorist. And, but I think like for, for people listening, it's like the big question I think people have to ask themselves. And we certainly probably don't have time to go into it here is how do you categorize the bad things that happen in Afghanistan vis-a-vis the bad things that happen around the world and other places. And given our unique connection to that country, and in some cases, responsibility over it, what is the healthy way to think about that? You know, and, and I'll be curious to see what Biden says on 9-11, because he, if we're just being honest, was looking to take a victory lap uh, a couple months ago and looked like he was looking ahead to 9-11 to say, all right, troops are out, we're turning the page. Be curious to see what he says in 9-11. Yeah, me too. I hope it's a continued emphasis on getting out Afghan allies, the American citizens on the ground. Obviously, that will be part of the emphasis. There's not, there's like a hundred and I'm sure that'll be emphasized. But, you know, when you've been there and you, there's, you know, we talked about this when Ben Rose was on the pod, like this whole thing of like, he was saying, and I love the way he put it, that his biggest grievance with American foreign policy is that it, it, it acts as though there are no human beings outside of the United States of America. and. For those of us who have been there and served there, like there are very much human beings there. I'm sure that this is not a very popular thing to say, but there's a hundred Americans left on the ground and there's a lot, thousands upon thousands of Afghan allies who worked with us, who risked their lives and who believed in what we told them who are left, who need to get out. And I know I'm supposed to make a distinction between the two, but I don't. Now, I know that's not the right policy, but that's just personally for me because of what I have invested in this because they're human beings who I know. And I think to your point, though, 
it, it does put us in this position now where we have to figure out how do we as a country regard Afghanistan? Because, you know, somebody asked me um, this past week, it was a reporter, they asked me what I thought about the criticism of the Biden administration working with the Taliban on counterterrorism and working with them to negotiate now and treating them as what they are now, a foreign power. Because there are people who are taking cheap shots, mostly, you know, I think entirely Republicans saying, or they're negotiating with the enemy. And my answer to that was, the reality is, you can't end a war and continue to treat the other side like the enemy, particularly if you have people in that country you want out. If you want something from them and you've chosen to end the war, well, then the power that prevailed, that's who you're going to deal with if you want to deal with that country. So people can be upset about us dealing with the Taliban all they want. But once you decide, and we nearly unanimously as a country decided to end the war, and, and rightfully so, you don't get to then complain that we're treating the people who control Afghanistan as if they control Afghanistan. When you end a war, you got to end the war. Yeah. yeah. And, and also, we should be you know, a little honest with ourselves and recognize that when you take a step back from it and, you know, hard for me, but you divorce yourself from our personal experience with the country, we've got relationships with authoritarian regimes, with terrible human rights records all right. over the all over the world. And it because it's in our interest. In this case, the difference is it is, I believe, in our moral and national security interests to work with this regime in order to get out the people who we owe it to them to get out. Well, Jason, I just bought my first ever cookbook recently, and there's a whole chapter on cooking fish dishes, which is big for me because I, I love fish. That's where you get a lot of your omega-3s and protein. But you know, going to the seafood counter can be intimidating. Uh, I don't really know what to get, which is why I love our sponsor, Wild Alaskan Company, um, because they deliver high-quality, sustainably sourced, wild-caught seafood right to us. Uh, and you can choose from salmon, whitefish, or a combination. And every month, there are different specials to explore. Yeah, each shipment contains premium, wild-caught, individually-wrapped portions of delicious seafood that's ready to prepare and easy to cook. Wild Alaskan Company seafood is how nature intended it to be. It's always wild, it's never farmed or modified, and it contains no antibiotics. You can adjust, pause, or cancel your membership anytime, and they offer 100% satisfaction guaranteed or your money back. Get your nutrition from nature with Wild Alaskan Company. And right now, you can get $15 off your first box of premium seafood when you visit wildalaskancompany.com slash majority54. That's wildalaskancompany.com slash majority54 for $15 off your first box, wildalaskancompany.com slash majority54. Make sure to use our URL to let them know that we sent you. The past year and a half has been really hard on most Americans, and I know a lot of people who've taken on debt. Uh, over the course of the past year and a half. And that's why I'm excited about our next sponsor, which is Upstart, which is a fast and easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan all online. Whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high interest debt, or funding personal expenses, over half a million people have used Upstart to get one fixed monthly payment. And Upstart knows you're more than just your credit score and is expanding access to affordable credit. And unlike other lenders, Upstart considers your income and current employment to find you a smarter rate for your loan. With a five-minute online rate check, you can see your rate up front for loans between $1,000 to $50,000. You can receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash majority54. That's upstart.com slash majority54. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know that we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash majority54. Ravi, as we turn to discuss the Supreme Court decision regarding the Texas abortion law, I have to admit something embarrassing, which is I've been so consumed by what I've been trying to do to get folks out of Afghanistan that while I've been really aware of this in the news. I'll be honest, I haven't gotten a chance to really read about it much. And I'm like vaguely aware that there's this crazy bounty part of it or whatever. So 
I am looking forward to you explaining this insanity, not just to the audience, but to me. Yeah. And I want to mention before I go into this topic that we had an episode a couple months ago uh, with Jamia and Kate from a podcast called Ordinary Equality. And, and their second season is all about abortion. And our episode a few months ago was, was all about abortion. I think it was called the abortion episode. So folks should absolutely go back and listen to that. And also that's a cautionary note to say that we're two dudes talking about abortion and we carved out time uh, not too long ago to spend a whole podcast with two of our friends to talk about this. But this law, to give you some background, it was passed in May, but it went into effect last week when the Supreme Court declined to stop the law, which I'll get to in a second. Uh, and the law essentially says that any pregnancy in which a heartbeat is detected cannot be aborted uh, effectively means that no abortion can happen past six weeks. Uh, the really strange and 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 terrible thing about this law uh is that it incentivizes the public to police abortions and allows anyone living in the state of texas who is not a government official to sue an abortion provider or anyone else they suspect that's aiding and abetting abortions and gives a ten thousand dollar reward for that that is really important for a few reasons most importantly it was crafted to prevent this law from being reviewable by the courts. And and this is not obvious, so let me explain this for folks who didn't go to law school or for those who did and, and might have forgotten a few things. That, that'd be me. That'd be yeah, me. yeah. <laughs> and me too. I, but... I can't figure out why they can't, so you're about to tell me. Well, here's what happens. Like When a state passes a law, there's this issue that you, you're probably familiar with called standing, right? Like If you want to challenge right. that law, you have to have standing. And in order to have standing to challenge a state law, usually... You, you can't sue the state itself because there's this concept called sovereign immunity where the state is immune to suits, but you can sue. Uh, there's this case from 1908 uh, that says you can sue an officer of the state who's carrying out the law. So they crafted this law and, and <sighs> actually explicitly carve out. It says any person other than an officer of the state, the law says, uh, can enforce this law. Very specific uh, language essentially saying Ordinary citizens can carry out this law, but not state officials, which means you don't know who to sue. Uh, and that's when the Supreme Court 5-4 said they're going to let the law stand. They did say that they had serious questions about the constitutionality of this law, but were unsure of how to stop it. So essentially what's happening is there's nobody to sue right now, maybe. What there, it's actually more complicated than this, but there's nobody to sue, depending on how you look at the law. now. My sense is there are two big forks in the road here. Number one is if this law is actually implemented by any citizen suing another citizen, that will trigger litigation, and that's where the constitutional challenges will come from. Obviously, this law being in effect is already deterring a lot of people from seeking the care that they need, which is a huge problem. But it won't be until this, this law is actually enforced that people can challenge this particular law. There is an exception to that. We'll talk about that later. The second thing is that there's there is another case in the Supreme Court about a Mississippi law that says you can't get an abortion after 15 weeks. That actually is on the docket for uh, this fall, which will at least give us a sense of where the Supreme Court is heading. All of this to say is this is a particularly sinister law. There are other states that are going to try to copy this. My sense is that this is absurd and that if, if the Supreme Court allows this particular mechanism to stand, then liberals should mimic it on issues that we care about. So, for example, New York should pass a law that says there's a $10,000 bounty on anyone. And I mean bounty, not like in the, the way that most people hmm. interpret it, but I mean in this sense. For anybody who owns a gun, why don't we do that and start carving out constitutional laws that you know we think won't – like you know, withstand judicial scrutiny it's, for being It's actually really similar, yeah. right? Because just like you have sovereign immunity as uh, as a government, we have, through our stupid legislation, basically given the equivalent of sovereign immunity or just immunity to the gun manufacturers. So it would, it's very similar in yeah. the analogy. Well, it's just another case of Republicans playing chess while we play checkers. And, you know, this comes as Breyer has declined, it seems, to retire. I mean, we've got to get our shit together here. It always seems, I don't want to be negative, and this is not helpful, but it always seems like the Republicans are the ones coming up with these insane, crazy mechanisms to push their worldview on the majority of people who disagree with them. 
Whereas we have the majority with us and we seem to be honoring like all of these things like the filibuster and et cetera that, you know, and like this sense that there's a depoliticized Supreme Court. So Breyer doesn't want to step down during a Democratic administration while he's healthy. And it just seems like we're playing one game and they're playing the other. Can, you know? can I, well, let's let's when we say we like, let's be fair. We are not. And Mansion. frankly, yeah, well, right, yeah. yeah. And frankly, like even in Washington, I think this is true. Our generation of Democrats are not. It's right. it, you know, it is generally uh, cast as like progressives and moderates. But let's be real. Like it's like generational. Even, you know, Biden has largely come around, but he was a perfect example of somebody who, you know, had been in these institutions for so long and it was really hard for him to come around to the idea that, no, that ain't going to work anymore. But like, you know, Breyer, Manchin, the folks who are approaching things this way are just people who, not unlike the conversation we had a few minutes ago about how we thought 9-11 was going to change everything, it's taken us time to adjust to the idea of how polarized everything is after 9-11. It's taken them way more because they had all these years of like Republicans and Democrats, you know, clocking out and then going to get drinks together at Hawk and Dove. There was a dance in the in the federal court, which that's one of the most conservative, I think the most conservative circuit in the country. I'm not going to bore our listeners with the procedure around this, but if you go down the rabbit hole I went down looking at the, the way that this case has evolved, has made its way through the system. I've never been a believer that courts are apolitical, but this is, it is brazen what's going on right now. Essentially what happened was there was this dance in the circuit and and um, the district courts to essentially prevent any constitutional ruling on this law. And it's just, it, it just shows that unfortunately, as much as I want to believe in a apolitical judicial branch, that we have a partisan judiciary. In this week of misinformation, Jason, I want to do a rundown of just a few flashpoints in the COVID misinformation wars. And, and I want to start with this drug called ivermectin. I'm sure our listeners have heard that, that name thrown around over the past few weeks. Uh, there was a high profile situation where Joe Rogan, the, the, the very successful podcaster, got COVID and mentioned that he was taking ivermectin, among other things, to get better. Jason, I think this is a huge trap, uh, and I want to explain why. And I don't think either side looks really great on this, but given our audience, I want to focus on what liberals need to be careful about here. Uh, so let me give you a little bit of background here. Uh, ivermectin is an antiparasitic drug uh, that has been used to cure things like river blindness and roundworms. And the scientists who developed it won the Nobel Prize in physiology and medicine. The CDC recommends it for, for instance, refugees coming into this country if they're coming from certain places that have certain known parasites. And so it's a real drug. And I think that's the first thing I want to mention is that it is a real drug that outside of the COVID context for sure has saved lives. So when we talk about it as um, a horse dewormer, that is a specific part of the problem where some people are going after this drug and it's in limited supply because of like the kind of run on it. And so some people are taking the horse dewormer, but that's not the, the main thrust of what's going on here. So I want to say that's the first part of this. The second part of this is that there have been, there's been a lot of people and, and a lot of people on the right, but not only the right, who have been touting this as a cure for COVID, COVID, or at least a, a mitigating uh, therapeutic for COVID. And the left reacted to this, uh, in, in the, this is the case of Rogan and others, by kind of, I, I would say not everybody, but a lot of people on the left have poked fun at people on the right, and in some cases gotten outraged over the emphasis on ivermectin or even the use of it. And that's where I think the trap is, because I'll go into this in, in a second, but it's not obvious that this is this is isn't helpful to treat COVID. And actually, um, the FDA has said that they don't know yet whether it's effective or not. But they're reviewing data. But there there is one meta study of the fifteen ivermectin trials for COVID that found that it did reduce deaths among uh, COVID nineteen patients. And the, the you know the seven scientists who were part of that study said they have moderate certainty that evidence finds that large reductions in COVID-19 deaths are possible using ivermectin. The World Health Organization has greenlit clinical trials 
on the use of the drug for COVID-19, but say that the data is uncertain. So all of this is to say it, it could be helpful for COVID. I think the left is is not being precise. Some members of the left aren't being precise enough. I think that the problem with this is that people are taking it instead of getting the vaccine. That's the problem. The fact that people are taking it, in my opinion, we should kind of put aside whether it's effective or not and let the scientists figure that out and just say, if you're taking it instead of the vaccine, that's the problem. Well, this is much like like the whole point of the show, right, is to help people have these conversations, you know, on a case by case basis. And what we always preach is like, don't just launch into people. Like if somebody says something, stop, consider it, demonstrate that you're actually listening because it's good for your credibility. But it's also true in the larger debate. We have gotten ourselves so spun up over whether or not people have gotten the vaccine and rightfully so. Like I'm upset when people don't get the vaccine and I'm obviously really mad at all the people out there with big microphones telling people not to get the vaccine. But we should try and remember that if there is a drug that reduces the likelihood of death among people who have contracted COVID, that is a good thing. Like we should, we would want to root for that. That would be a good thing. And at the same time, we can really, really want people to get the vaccine. I understand that people are mad at the idea that people uh, are going, I'm not going to get the vaccine because of this. That's understandable. But making fun of people before you bother to learn more is not helpful and doesn't increase your credibility and therefore makes it harder to convince people to do what you want, which is get the vaccine. I'll be honest. I had this conversation before I had looked it up and read anything about it. I had this conversation with Diana the other day. We were talking about Joe Rogan's video he made where he was like, you know, I threw the whole kitchen sink at it because everybody is like, yeah, except for the vaccine. And she was like, you know, I went and read about it and we're obviously both vaccinated. And she was like, and I, I obviously think you should get vaccinated. She said, she's like, but you got to read more about it. It's it's not impossible that this thing treats it. It doesn't mean you shouldn't get the vaccine, but like we don't look credible when we right. just react with anger to everything. It reminds me a lot of how we all, because it was said by Trump, we all reacted angrily to the theory of a, a lab leak in Wuhan. Right. And now we're at a place where like nobody wants to talk about the fact that like that might be the best theory. Yeah. Um, and that harmed our credibility. It's at least a still a plausible theory. And nobody knows like China, like who the heck knows what happens in China. I think that's important to just point out is like they are a black box on this kind of stuff. And it certainly is a theory that's on the table. And, you know, like I said, it's like for Diana's point, it's not just that it's possible that this drug works. There's some evidence, you know, that here we have seven scientists in a, in a published study saying that it is, it is very possible that this is preventing death. So when we're talking about matters of life or death, we need to be precise. And once again, I want to say that I, there is a valid critique of people who take this and don't get vaccinated, but I would just focus on the not getting vaccinated part of that. Like, forget about this. Yes, the people who are running out to livestock shops and taking the horse version of this, that's tough. Like, and that's bad. Like, yeah, that's tough. That is, that you, you're well yeah. said. It's like, it's tough to, it's tough to keep a straight face when you hear about but that. But that is their problem. That is not this, like, you need to ask yourself why you're upset about that. Are you really worried about that person's health? Do you know that person going to that horse place? You know, I was reading about this Las Vegas feed shop that actually is requiring people to show a picture of their horse uh, <laughs> when they that. get it. Uh, but like, really, if you're getting worked up over that, you need to ask yourself, are you worried about that person's health or are you just looking to have fun? And I'm seeing people like and this is a very common thing among people we really like, including some guests of this podcast who only talk about this as a horse dewormer. And that to me is not honest because that doesn't get at the vast majority of people taking this. Let's be honest. The problem is when we talk about this, instead of just talking about the need for people to get the vaccine, it's not because we're having fun. It's because we're feeling superior. And that's yes. the problem. That yes. is, that's where we hurt our credibility in making the argument. Well, there are other issues here that are percolating throughout society. One that I'm, I hear everywhere. I see it on my Instagram. I see it on my Facebook. I actually hear it in real life. Is this idea that people who are vaccinated and getting COVID at the same rate as everybody else. You know, my team's most uh, successful wide receivers tweets this on a daily basis. And I just want to go through the data here. And this is surgical. So uh, the case rate for full, fully vaccinated people is 
per 100,000 people. The case rate for unvaccinated people is 243 per 100,000 people. So that's four times plus the amount of people getting COVID who are unvaccinated. And people who are vaccinated are 14, not four, but 14 times less likely to be hospitalized, way less likely to die. And there was a, a study published in Lancet, which is one of the most respected medical journals in the world that just came out a couple of days ago. I think it was September 1st that said that not only is there a decreased risk of infection and severe symptoms if you get vaccinated, but there is a 49% lower risk of what they call long COVID, which is you know the months or longer version of COVID where you get brain fog, loss or taste of smell, hair loss, uh, numbness for many months. I know some people who've gotten COVID at the beginning of COVID and they're still experiencing symptoms. So basically across the board, getting vaccinated is an unambiguous one. The analogy to me is like, when somebody says this to you, like, well, people with, you know, people still get COVID uh, when they're vaccinated. It's like, well, yes, you can still get in a car accident if you are completely sober and have your seatbelt on. But the result is way different and it's far less likely to happen. So maybe just drive sober and wear your seatbelt. Yeah, well, amen to that. We haven't done this in a while. Uh, let's do a little uh, quarantine slash aren't we relatable corner. Jason, I know you have been busy with your work in Afghanistan, but anything uh, going on outside of the substance past few weeks? Let's see. A couple of things. One, uh, True and I, we, we co-authored a children's book called Courage Is. People may have heard me interview my son about that book on this podcast. That uh, came out about a week ago, uh, which has been really exciting. Um, it, it, it briefly, it was, uh, out of stock because it, it sold pretty well to start, but now, Congrats, uh, man, that's so awesome. Yeah, it's really fun. Uh, and, and now it is, uh, you can get it, you, you can order it online. It's called courages. It's been really fun to get messages and read them, uh, to true, like over social media and texts of people saying like, Oh, I, you know, I, I read this to, to my, my first graders, or I I've used this to talk about the first day of school with my kid. So that's been, uh, on the really high good side. And then on the, um, aren't we relatable and I'm getting older corner. I have been roaming center field with authority uh in in uh in my baseball league which has been great i've made some incredible plays but when i made plays like that back in like travel ball in high school i don't recall breaking a rib which oh, i have no. done <laughs> which i have done now so i'm about two weeks into healing that i haven't gotten oh, to wow. play in a couple of weeks yeah it's really painful sneezing hurts a lot when you break a rib so i um i i don't recommend it and how long does it take to heal? Uh, they say that it, at a minimum, it's two to three weeks. So I heard two weeks. So okay. that's my plan. <laughs> we'll <laughs> wow, we'll better, see how that goes. You better take those athletic greens. Yeah. Uh, well, I have two um, just content things. One is I have been watching this Netflix Formula One show. Mm. And, and just for context, I had no interest in Formula One before I seen the show. Like I would rank, I would have ranked it with like badminton and golf and bowling in terms of like sports I, I'm least likely to watch. But it is riveting, the show. Like the sport is riveting, the show is riveting. And what I, it's, it's definitely worth a watch. Like, trust me, even if you don't like Formula One. And what's cool about it is these teams are thousands of people. Like you see just the driver. But in contrast to say like, a football team like the Buffalo Bills outside of the coaching staff and the players and the GM, the general manager, most people who work for the organization don't really make a difference in their victory or loss. I know people like to say they do, but in a formula one, there are thousands of employees who are like, are actually part of the team in the sense of like win or lose because they're engineers who work on the cars or are testing the technology and reviewing data or whatever, raising money because like you, these are tr tremendously expensive cars to maintain, working on strategy. Like, so it is cool in the sense that these teams are massive. It's also cool in the sense that like a team has two drivers and you would think that they're a team, but because the only true competition, really the pure competition is if you have the same car where it's like an ego thing, the actual drivers on each team are crazy competitive with each other and actually like kind of sabotage each other. Uh, and it's like, it adds a whole other element to 
the process because ostensibly you want to win as a team but you also like these are egomaniacs who like if they're if they could pass somebody they will try to even if it's not good for the, their overall victory because they want to say they're better than that person and so it's just riveting and they're like these suave europeans who just talk trash to each other non-stop so i just i love it it's awesome uh, and then the other the other piece of content is there's this podcast. I think it's only available on Spotify, but it's called 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. And this guy is hilarious. He's like a music critic for The Ringer who does it. And if you grew up in the 90s, you have to listen to this. It'll bring the nostalgia. All right. I, I could be down for that. I'll, I'll look that up. Oh, and on for that one, start with Semi-Charmed Life. I just uh, I was just on yesterday and I was thinking this is the most 90s song. Well, it's it's an incredible episode because the guy, the lead singer of that band, apparently like is a famous asshole. And so like half the podcast is the the host interviewing singers from the period, each one of whom just get on and say, yeah, that guy's terrible. But then they'll also be like, but yeah, he writes great songs. Uh, but it's just really funny how they put it together. So that's my uh, that's my quarantine corner. For Grab an Oar, uh, I'm going to point to something that's happening in real time, which is I'm actually, as soon as we finish recording here, I'm getting on the road and driving to St. Louis because tomorrow morning, Thursday, so when this episode airs, we are breaking ground, uh, we being Veterans Community Project, on a new campus in St. Louis. So we're starting construction on a village of uh, uh, 50 units, 50 tiny houses with a community center for wraparound case management services and an outreach center, which will be a walk-in clinic for all veterans in the area. So I'm I'm really excited about this. And whether you're in St. Louis or not, you can support it. You can go to veteranscommunityproject.org. And, uh, you know, we got to raise several million dollars to get this to completion. And we're starting now. So we'd love it if you uh, went to veteranscommunityproject.org and made a donation. As usual, we would encourage you to leave us a voicemail. Uh, it's 508-687-2589, 508-687-2589. Last week, we got into a bunch of voicemails. We look forward to trying to do that again soon. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. And our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Aller. Theme music is provided by Kenneth Coleman. Special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.